You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with E.O. Wilson. This program originally aired in 2014. You may remember that Gauguin uh, traveled around a good part of the world in his quest to get as far away as possible from Paris. He'd been a latecomer into the great uh, revolution of the uh, Impressionists and others, and he wanted his own art. And he first went to Central America uh, and uh, tried out uh, various forms of primitivism and then not satisfied, he came back and then off to the remotest part of French territories, Society Islands. He settled at Tahiti. And while on Tahiti, um, he was coming toward the end of his life, he published uh, his masterpiece, a Tahitian masterpiece, a rather large canvas, uh, now in the Museum of Fine Hearts. And it depicted Samoan society, um, in a semi-surrealistic form, he now had his own uh, technique and expression in his depiction of human figures. After he finished this masterpiece for a French sponsor, he decided to commit suicide. So he collected a lot of arsenic, went up into the hills above Tahiti in order to um, die in a hidden place because he wanted his the body to be eaten by ants. You see, I think I took at least four minutes before I got the ants. <laughs> but, uh, and I'll just tell you parenthetically, and this is the last you'll uh, uh, hear about ants unless I'm pleaded with later. And I can tell you there is no ant in the Pacific region that could eat Paul Gauguin. Fortunately, uh, Gauguin changed his mind and he came back down and decided to go to yet a more remote places. And there, that was the Marquesas Islands. He, was there, he went there for a while. And, but the point of the story is that in the Tahitian masterpiece, you can see it yourself the next time you're in Boston. There is written the title of the painting in the upper left-hand corner. And it says, where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? And that's the subject of my talk tonight, I wanted to tell you about my effort to think those through and to try to put them back into the mainstream of our thinking. Now, these happen to be the three questions that are central in both religion and philosophy. Through millennia, religion is never going to provide the answers. The reason that each organized religion, we call it each faith, has its own different creation story. And each creation story was written in times and circumstances when the authors knew almost nothing about the universe. Each of these creation stories, or each religion rather, considers its creation story better in answer to where do we come from and what are we and where we're going to be set in stone and superior to all others. They cannot all be correct. No two can be correct. We also look in vain to philosophy for the answer to the great riddle. Despite its noble purpose, professional secular philosophy long ago gave up trying to answer the overall question, what is the meaning of life? Most of the history of philosophy is strewn with the wreckage of um, 
theories of the conscious mind. By default, the solution of the great riddle has been left to science. What science promises is the following. There is a real creation story of humanity, and one only. It's being worked out and tested and lengthened step by step. When I say science, science that can answer the three great questions, I don't mean just any science. You're going to get an answer from the following disciplines. Evolutionary biology, paleontology, but especially archaeology, the brain sciences, artificial intelligence, and robotics. They've cut a path through the fever swamp of speculation, creation mythologies, and of attempts to make some sense out of the human enigma. And here is what we think we know about where we come from. We are an aberrant old world primate. We split off the human evolutionary evolving line from chimps about six million years ago. At any rate, not an awful lot happened. We came bipedal. Um, we got what's called an adaptive radiation, a whole array of species separating from one another, mostly vegetarian. About two to three million years ago, the brains of these australopiths uh, was no much larger than a, a chimp. Then one line shifted to meat. And in the course of this, we know from predators and scavengers, they tend to form packs and uh, have some division of labor. We are now going from Homo habilis, the habilines, in which the brain capacity goes up from 400 cubic centimeters to maybe you know, 600, 700. And then with the emergence of uh, the hominid, the uh, modern Homo, uh, went on up to 1,200 to 1,400 cubic centimeters. That was an almost miraculous expansion. And it produces this strange-looking spherical head we have with, you know, with a bulging brow. That's all memory storage area. This is what happened. And it was a, um, a circumstance of where these bipedal creatures lived and what they came to eat how they came to uh, interact with one another. This kind of evolution occurred, uh, we know of, 18 times in the history, only 18 times we know of in Israel life. Now we come to uh, what are we? And I'll just make a quick reference to one consequence of the modern theory of population, genetics, and evolution. Uh, it's controversial, and it is this. Uh, that when natural selection occurs uh, in groups like this, like the early humans, it's occurring at two levels. One is the competition that comes uh, between uh, groups competing with one another. And the other is with individuals within groups that compete in a Darwinian sense. They may be cooperating mostly, but generally whether you succeed within a group or not, is that's the individual level. But here is what's really interesting about that. Uh, if you have that situation of multi-level selection, what you have is a kind of competing array of traits, physical and mental, that characterize uh, the organisms. Uh, and it works like this. Within 
take a single group, one society. Within that, the um, selfish, selfish individuals win over altruistic individuals. But in competition between groups, societies of altruistic individuals beat societies of selfish individuals. And uh, that is the best explanation that I think we've developed to date of the instability of human emotions. Uh, we've often wondered where this conscience, where this conflict within us comes from. That would be a consequence of multi-level selection, which is an inevitable process going on to produce a more advanced society. That uh, that contest can never reach equilibrium. If we went all altruistic, we would be like ants. If we were all selfish savages, there would be no society. And um, that's also the source of creative thought, uh, the attempts we, we constantly have to express those emotions, to bring them out and understand them in a direct person-to-person -person way. And I'll now complete this trilogy by uh, telling you uh, where are we going. Well, I have a suggestion of one, one place we've got to go, and that'll be the subject of, of the next one book, and uh, it's uh, called The End of the Anthropocene, The End of the Age of Man. And I mean it. What, it, uh, what an Anthropocene is, is, is the age we are now in, it's about to be called a geological epoch, like the Pleistocene, and, um, because of the enormous changes that just humans by themselves have created. And we've got to bring this to a halt. I think we can do it uh, with uh, the uh, digital revolution. Uh, when we advance further with the uh, digital revolution, what we are doing is uh, automatically, by the um, power of com competitive markets, bringing down the size, energy consumption, amount of travel that has to be involved. We're shrinking the amount of space that each person must have to have a quality life. That's something we haven't given any thought to. That is the force that can overbalance human population growth. Uh, and as far as consumption is concerned, uh, that looks like the runaway thing that will eat up all of our resources and lead us into perdition uh, and destroy all the rest of life. But I, don't, I think we could stop that right now, stop the mass extinction we're creating, and uh, some attention has been given to it. Uh, that is uh, my, what I've thought about it, and that is the, uh, what I call the half-Earth solution. Half to us, that one species, half to the eight million other species on Earth whose existence support us with a minimum of effort on our part just to sustain our lives. Uh, and I think we have a chance. There's a little opening that we could go through, the bottleneck, and come out in the 22nd century uh, if we play it right and we can bring the rest of life with us.
biologist, ecologist, theorist, and Pulitzer Prize-winning author E.O. Wilson there, talking about where he believes the human species is headed. When we come back, I'll join Wilson on stage and talk more about the meaning of human existence, including why the understanding of our species requires science and the humanities, the search for life on other planets, and what the extraterrestrials we might encounter there could look like. That's after a short break when this special Writers on a New England Stage edition of Word of Mouth continues on NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott with a special edition of Word of Mouth. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with E.O. Wilson, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Now 85, Harvard Professor Emeritus E.O. Wilson's distinguished career has not been without controversy. He was labeled a racist and a fascist in the mid-1970s for proposing that human social behavior was biologically based. In one infamous episode, a protester at a scientific conference doused him over the head with water. He was later vindicated by genetic research showing how genes affect human behavior. Wilson and prominent Darwinist Richard Dawkins have long been in a public squabble over evolutionary theory. And Wilson has also been targeted by religious leaders for declaring that there is no supernatural being controlling human behavior or the natural universe. And indeed that such beliefs prevent humans from solving the critical problems of our time. I joined E.O. Wilson on stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth to talk with him about his book, The Meaning of Human Existence, and to include questions submitted by the audience. The book was named a finalist for the National Book Award the morning after our interview. Given that the questions E.O. Wilson raises in the book are whether humanity has a special place in the universe and about the meaning of our personal lives, I asked him whether, for an avowed scientist, those questions are even testable or can be answered using facts. Let's put it another way. The problem that most of the humanities have had um, is, and the creative arts included among them, has been they're not historical. Uh, you really, in order to understand a phenomenon and the, the product that exists at the present time, of the state of humanity, of our immense creativity in all of its forms, you have to, and you want to know what it means, and therefore from that decisively, what it means to be a human being. You've got to have history. And by history, I mean all of it. That History makes no sense without prehistory. We've got to have a real big interest in the Neolithic, what happened. We have to have keen interest in our education and discourse and literature and exchange of uh, the pre-humans that led to the current situation of, uh, of modern homo sapiens. And then you have to have the biology. We have to be able to use the language that's developing in order to work out history, prehistory, biology. Biology, history is the way to go to understand what's going on. Well, I like the language that you use in the book. There's a metaphor that you have for how the earth relates to the universe. Do you remember this? As the second segment of the left antenna of an aphid sitting on a flower petal in a garden in Teaneck, New Jersey, for a few hours this afternoon. <laughs> that's, that's the planet Earth. That's how small we are. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to admit uh, what the, the evidence of your eyes. You know, it's 100 billion stars in the galaxy. 
uh, the recent discovery that most of the stars uh, have um, some planets. Um, we know, uh, we can guess that there will be life and intelligent life on other planets. They're not going to come here. But, um, ah, yes, let's, okay. let's ask that because uh, you, yeah, all right. well, let's, you write let's, about that, that, you know, unlike all of the science fiction books, they're not going to come here or no. they're not going to colonize Earth. Why not? No, I'm glad you brought that up because I think we need to release a little anxiety. Oh, it makes, <laughs> it makes terrific movies, though. Oh, I'm such a fan of alien invasion, but it's not going, it's not going to happen. Why? Because, um, the um, uh, aliens would have almost certainly, whether we don't know, I hope we'll find out eventually, maybe by sampling and finding life on Europa, Enceladus, uh, and uh, other possible life-bearing solar planets and moons, uh, we may find other life, and we can answer this question maybe within the solar system, but eventually we'll find out. But whether they have uh, the same genetic code or not, I think it's unlikely, but they might. Uh, it's going to be a radically different ensemble of organisms and different physiologies and so on. And it would be fatal for them uh, to, to uh, land on an alien planet that's already life-bearing like this. Mm. They would, in order to take um, possession of a planet, a life-bearing planet like Earth, they would have to kill everything first, right down to the last microbe, because it would be a train wreck, you know, in the inter interaction of the two radically different planetary faunas and floras. So given what you know about the biology of the species on Earth and what we know now about what is out in space and the microbes and the nature of those, you've drawn up this rough sketch of these extraterrestrial organisms and determined that they are land dwellers, audiovisual beings, relatively large, distinct big heads, high social intelligence, small number of free appendages. So Hollywood's actually come pretty close so far. Yeah, they have, but I want them to get rid of the claws. You know, uh, the one thing that sort of broke the spell while I was watching... Uh, uh, War of the Worlds with uh, Tom Cruise was when he finally got to see uh, some of these aliens. They came off the mother's, not the ship, but a cruiser, and came down and he could see them and they had claws. No. Claws, no. Finger, soft, pulpy fingertips necessary. You know why? Why? Tool making. You cannot make tools with claws mm. and fangs. Uh, claws are for carnivores. You know, they tear flesh, kill, tear flesh. Fangs are for male competition and fighting off predators. Well, you know? we're one species, right? 600 million years in evolution, and we got humans. So given all of the twists and the turns along the way in our evolution, how can we assume that ETs would follow that same kind of path? You mean, how can we be sure that they wouldn't end up yeah, like Yeah, that you? they'll have bigger heads, that they oh, will they, be land dwellers. Well, I'm just guessing that, but I, that's based on comparative biology. In other words, um, what, I've, what I looked at was um, 
the many lines of evolution on the land. You can't have uh, intelligent life in, in the sea. Why? Because? No source. Uh, you, you can't have fire. And it's highly unlikely that you would have enough intense, contained, and controllable energy source. We have that with fire. But at any rate, uh, the uh, creatures have to be on the land, and they probably, I, I think, I'm guessing, uh, that they're going to have those features you just mentioned. But they, beyond that, they're, they're going to have um, any number of physiological mechanisms and ways to communicate. Uh, one of the things I've pointed out in the book that's not understood by people is how absolutely limited we are in our abilities to sense anything. We're among the few audio-visual creatures on Earth. Birds are one of the few other groups, and that's why we love them so. Uh, but uh, humans are audio-visual, and almost all the rest of life is pheromonal. Pheromones are the way life on Earth communicates, primarily. And um, we've only begun to understand how that's done. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole world in its own right, how, how life is going on all around us, and we're not aware of the way it's happening or how they're communicating, totally unaware. Um, and uh, when we come even to vision uh, and hearing, we have to bear in mind that even if our aliens could see, they may not be seeing with sensitivity to the same microscopic segment of the electromagnetic spectrum that we are. See, we, you go from gamma rays to... Um, ultra-low frequency uh, waves, and there's just an immense number of places where you can pull out in your evolution sensitivity and communicate with it and actually see little bits of the world. But ours, what we call vision, you know, visual, the visual segment, is microscopic in the total range. And that's just the beginning. We only can hear a tiny segment of sound waves, and we're completely aware, unaware of electrical communication, which a lot of fish uh, engage in, and we, uh, we can't sense at all. We can't even imagine the Earth's electric magnetic field, but birds and other, other organisms orient with it. So what we are, are we're blind creatures, sort of just fumbling around with a tiny awareness the segment of awareness of all these stimuli that are being used by the eight million other species. I think it's very unlikely that uh, the aliens that we might learn about would be anything like us and the, you know, the exactitude of how they run their lives. Well, you have been observing species on this really, maybe not chemosensory level at that point, but since you were a child. And I was reading about your childhood in your book, The Nat Naturalist. Yeah. You were raised in a Southern Baptist household in Alabama. You sounded like you had a pretty enchanted childhood, spent a lot of time outdoors, lost an eye at, what, seven years old? Yeah, I lost it to a fish. A fish? I pulled oh. a fish up and... 
a spine, a spine from a poisonous fish. But it didn't seem to slow you down very much. Was that was that a decisive moment for you? For you, did it sort of change the course of your life? Well, actually, that did because um, I also was born with low sensitivity to high frequencies. I'm an impaired person. I, I didn't I didn't think I had any disabilities until I was entering my current elder statesman uh, <laughs> period. I thought I was normal. I could only see with one eye and I could only hear lower frequencies very well. So I guess that, in a way, was one of the reasons I studied insects, because I, uh, I could see them very sharply. And very early, you know, I figured out that ants, my favorite insects, were communicating like crazy, and nobody could see how they were doing it. It was around 1960, early, late 50s, that at Harvard I collaborated with, with natural products chemists to work on the same project using the new, brand new technology of gas chromatography, electrophoresis. You know, I'm nodding like I know what you're talking yeah, about. Well, no idea. No, well, listen, you watch uh, whatever it is, crime pictures and so on. Uh, that's a technique that allows you to detect minute traces of uh, what poison sometimes, a different chemical. But what we did in the 60s was to start uh, reading the minute amounts of chemicals that the ants were putting out for different situations. They were talking. They talk. They have between 10 and 20 individual pheromones, substances, that they combine almost like a grammar, vary uh, in meaning according to distance and, uh, and concentration. Uh, and uh, we didn't know about it because uh, until we could uh, measure and actually identify these pheromones uh, down to uh, the millionth of a gram. And when that happened, then we began to hear the ants talking, or sense the ants talking. And this is a whole area uh, of exploration that we're going to continue to open up in the study of life on this planet. Somebody I want to ask you more yeah. about that because ants and termites are among the 18 species you mentioned that... 18 lines. 18 lines uh, of species. Times in the whole history of life uh, that have uh, kicked through to the level of altruism-based societies in which individuals sacrifice their lives or their reproduction in order to serve the group. Uh, here's a question from the audience. Have you ever seen signs of individual behavior in ants? Yeah, uh, it's, it varies. We, we, um, we've discovered a phenomenon, and I haven't come to fi- uh, figure out exactly what it is, of the elites. There are elite ants, just ordinary workers. They're all female, you know. I do know. Yeah, okay, yes, that's right. I, uh, I, I didn't want to, you know, pump you up too much. <laughs> I, uh, at any rate, uh, they're, uh, they are elites. They work harder, they... They're more inquisitive. They start uh, the group working on things more. And I haven't got them figured out uh, yet. Maybe that's just part of the way the division of labor uh, come, uh, comes about. But these, this is the success of the species, that social instinct you point out, eusociality. Yeah, 18 times. So why in a single primate line, do you think? Um, it had to do with the concatenation 
of pre-adaptations. I'm sorry. Those are, uh, those are Harvard words for uh, evolution prepared them for it. Okay, meaning um, you, you, uh, you really had to have bipedal. That's a very rare phenomenon, you know, in the evolution of the animals. Mm -hmm. They had to be bipedal to free the four. No claws. But, uh, but uh, they had, it's probably, was almost necessary that they have pulpy fingertips. We have records of dinosaurs that were bipedal. And they could have gone that direction, but they didn't. And uh, then we had, we started with pretty big brain. The old world primation, all the monkeys, the anthropoid apes, were um, just as part of their evolution for reasons that are explainable. So for, we understand why those old world primates usually have pretty big brains. Start with that. So with the pre-adaptations, these conditions, and then you add uh, the fact that we make campfires, nests. Now, why is, is remarkable. Uh, it's time for me to mention that when I looked at all 18 of the cases that we've winnowed out, you know, of having led to these advanced eusocial creatures, um, every one, no exception, went through a period of evolution in which the female or the female with a male builds a, a nest, mm -hmm. you know, like a mud dauber. Yeah. But it's more than that. There are quite a few who do that. Uh, but of these, there are a few that build a nest. And then the female, maybe with the male, insisting, rear the young by going out and collecting food and feeding it to them while they grow up. And we call that progressive provisioning. And that, that's rare. And within that group, uh, entirely within that group, all 18 of these lines that went to the eusocial level, including human beings, sprang forth. Well, along with that instinct for cooperation in human beings came, as you mentioned, competition. You know, that it sets up this idea that uh, of virtue and sin, right? So as we become more advanced at genetic selection, should we select out of the species to make people more social, more pro-social, less warlike, more ecologically concerned beings, and do away with this inner conflict between competition and cooperation, the self and the other? Absolutely not. Um, you know, when you think about it, particularly when we're now on the edge of uh, developing robots that really can not only do complex tasks, but can learn how to do them and do them better, uh, we now ask ourselves, what are we as a species? And what we are are our emotions. What we are is that remarkable uh, conflict and um, never able to equilibrate our emotions or move one way or the other. That is what humanity is. That's our precious gift. If we completely, perf we did get a per perfect society, it's been tried. <laughs> it never works. Uh, but if we succeeded in getting a complete, a perfect society, we would die as a, as a species. We need 
that turmoil. And I think we can do a little bit less. Uh, we can do well with a fewer terrorists. Uh, we seem to have almost given up national warrant, obviously that. But please don't give up football. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we, have, we don't ask ourselves, why do we love sports and team sports so much? Group competition. Mm -hmm. It's the biggest, it's the most powerful drive of human nature. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is a special edition of Word of Mouth. Writers on a New England stage with E.O. Wilson, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of the Music Hall and NHPR. Actually, I want to bring it back to that because you talk about tribalism a lot in the book, that in secular societies, tribalism is displayed through political dissent, or political uh, partisanship, rather. But to draw back, this comes from a basic instinct for religious belief. And you're harder on religions, the great religions, quote-unquote, in this book, I think, than any that I've ever seen of yours. That's because I went to the roots. Well, you charge religious leaders to publicly defend the supernatural details of their faiths. You liken creationism to a lethal parasite <laughs> and say that the great religions are sources of ceaseless suffering impeding the grasp of reality needed to solve most social problems in the real world. Those are fighting words. Yeah. I, thought this, this the was, is... I thought this was the moment when, you know, the door was held open and I got to the car. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, but the I brain it, was made uh, for okay, religion look, and religion for the brain, so what purpose I, has it I served? Am, I am no Richard Dawkins who wants to... Uh, bomb religion until, as Curtis LeMay once said about bombing Vietnam, he wanted to see the rubble bounce. That's the wrong way to address the whole thing. I'm looking for the source of uh, religious belief and what it is. And so I will tell you in just a few words, we were made by group competition. If you want warlike creatures, look at the ants. Or termites, put two termites colonies too close to one, and you've got total war, killing each other off until one prevails. Uh, it's because, and the reason for this, is that it takes group selection in addition to individual level selection to drive up the qualities of cooperation and altruism within the group. So now we come to humanity and religion. We, we have wasted centuries of of pointless talk about the mysteries of religious belief, you know, and how we can go deeper and deeper and draw down the mysterium tremendum and gradually come to be part of it and understand it or add it to... No, we're, what you're dealing here with is group versus group instinctive behavior. And uh, that is there because that kind of group competition drives species, all of them, all 18, even if they're lowly ants or termites. So what does that mean? That means that we carried into the Neolithic and to modern times this deep instinct to form groups, to be members of groups, to identify ourselves as members of the groups. This is a primary necessity the human mind has to belong to these groups. And we know from social psychology studies that people, even in experimental situations, 
where they're divided up into little teams that compete with one another, soon one begins to think it's superior to the other. We look then, or we should look, at what we call faith, which is defined by the creation story, defined by a set of supernatural we should look to the roots then of that if we want to understand it. No one has to this point. Now we should. And we, I think we should make a distinction between transcendent uh, religious thought, uh, that is what occupies the theologians, what all of us have, that actually is something of a unifying force, thinking together about is there a divine individual, thinking together about whether there's life beyond death. These are the transcendent uh, ones that could unite humanity, thinking and bu building our rituals on that. Uh, but what has happened is faith. The different faiths, there are hundreds of faiths. All of them, each one is a tribe that defines itself by those particular beliefs. And no matter how gentle, no matter how generous, uh, or loving, a member of one faith feels to the next. They still believe that their faith is superior. Mm -hmm. Faith has hijacked religion. What do you mean by that? I mean that the impulse to belong to groups with superior creation stories and supernatural beliefs held in common with the other members of the faith is fundamental uh, human behavior for the reason I said. But it means that there will be faith against faith, or shall we say self-identification to a faith as opposed to another, uh, has essentially hijacked the best parts that could be made of transcendental thought about religious issues. Okay, so I'm going to push us forward to the where we're going and, and use this as a part of an example the idea that in order to end the age of man, the Anthropocene era that you're talking about, and move forward into the future, we are going to have to fight our instinct to get what we want now instead of thinking about what we're leaving for future generations, right? We are going to have to be more eusocial, I guess, in your mind. Well, I think what we have to do is more understanding. We, uh, we need the base. We, that's... You know, I just mentioned transcendent values. Right. There are very few transcendent values. Human beings don't like transcendent values very much. They much prefer tribal-based ones. Uh, but this has to be a transcendent moral precept, is to save the rest of life. We are letting the rest of life go down the drain. Everybody knows that. We're up to about a thousand times the um, extinction rate that before humans came along of species. Um, and uh, we need to re-examine how we relate to the rest of uh, the diversity of life and try to develop a transcendent, uh, uh, more moral-based approach to conservation. And I would suggest, for example, the precept would sound something like this. I, I borrowed it from the medical profession. Do no or do no further harm to the biosphere. We're murdering the biosphere. And when we take, uh, when we take the biosphere off, you know, it's like taking off uh, a shield. Uh, 
the biospheric shield, what makes the atmosphere, which purifies the water and so on. Even selfishly, we don't want to remove this enormous 3.5 billion year uh, evolution and assembly of organisms so beautifully adapted to the planet uh, that keeps us in the midst of it. But there's a central dilemma here. Uh, the argument is made that, you know, people who are able to develop and mine and farm are raising themselves out of poverty. They are growing meat and food and their consumption. Is that not also pro-social behavior? Well, it becomes, and that, certainly, obviously. Each society in turn has this responsibility, whether it's uh, just a local community, a national community, uh, to uh, bring people up. And that's certainly within our, uh, even our most primitive uh, range of uh, ethical precepts. Uh, but the, uh, the aim should be for us to be able to do it universally for the, whole, for the whole planet. We're not likely to come to do that, and maybe we shouldn't try to do it, uh, that is, to, uh, to completely remove all competition, that sort of thing. But what we should do is to... Um, bring uh, the most suffering people up to a decent level, and we shouldn't re uh, have easy sleeping while we do it. There's something like a billion people still living below the poverty level right. in the world. But what I'm concerned about is uh, saving the rest of life. So what I'm proposing, and at first it sounds bizarre, is to take half of the planet and let nature keep it. Half, if we go through this crazy chaos we're going through and allow us to do all the things we're doing. We may wreck that part of the planet, but at least half will be in the hands of, uh, and it's eternal and rich, of the natural world. Of course, but, but, but thinking, human but beings that, don't have a particularly good record with partitions. Well, it's not the way you think. You're, you're thinking, that's ridiculous, half and <laughs> half? No. Uh, in fact, the book I have coming out, I show how it can be done. Uh, and, of course, the part for nature means we, we make a major effort to expanding national parks and reserves where you have the most biological diversity. Uh, we know how to do that. We know what those parts are. Uh, we know where the little differences are left. We know how to save them. We know uh, how to manage uh, blue water uh, uh, marine life. Uh, where we've now reduced uh, the fish, uh, the, um, the seafood yield down to below 99%, I mean, down, uh, down to 1%. Uh, we, we know how uh, to fix that. Uh, we know how to map out half the world and land. It's there. We can do it. And, and what I was saying uh, is that... Um, we shouldn't panic at the population growth. We shouldn't panic at continued consumption because just as a happy consequence, unintended consequence, of the relation between women's freedom and the uh, lowering of the birth rate, uh, that that unintended consequence solved the population problem. Yeah. Uh, so uh, do we have any other unintended consequences? Yeah. Free capitalist competition and innovation 
which automatically leads us to produce ever smaller, more efficient objects uh, that takes less material, less energy. That seems to be what human beings, just by the nature of things, uh, want to do. We shrink the ecological footprint, it's called, and then it's going to be a tight race to the end of the 21st century as to whether we can do that and achieve that shrinkage enough, see the population start to peak, uh, and leave, providing we do it rigorously now, make half inviolate. But in order to, uh, then we can do it, but it's going to be a close call. So despite our selfish genes, you are hopeful. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I think it's... You want to know the explanation of altruism and bravery? Uh, we got it. It's group selection. And I want you to join me in thanking Professor E.O. Wilson for spending some time with us tonight. <laughs>